If you're a guest with us today or this is your first time to worship with us, we're in a series called Falling Apart. And uh, John did a terrific job last week of addressing the theme, uh, where is God when the world is falling apart? And this morning we're going to ask the question, where is God when my family is falling apart? In the opening chapters of Genesis, we are treated to this marvelous word picture of what God did in creation. And uh, it's, uh, wouldn't you have loved to have been an eyewitness to creation? Uh, don't, don't you hope when you get home to heaven that God has a widescreen, high-def, Blu-ray version of, of creation so that we can see it and, 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 and live that out? We get caught up in the plant and animal kingdoms and all the creation that's going on in, in that, and we forget that there's one other thing that was created in the opening chapters of Genesis, and it is the family. It began with the union or the marriage of the man and the woman who were encouraged to have children and begin the process of populating the world. Now, we dare not dismiss this family unit lightly. I believe the family is the heart and the soul of any society. It is the basic foundation upon which any lasting culture is built. And whether you are single or married or widowed or divorced, you are impacted by your family, it's ex the extended family that you are a part of. Now, you'll hear a lot today about the family falling apart. A lot of people think the family is falling apart. You say, well, when did, when did that process actually begin? Well, truth, truth be known, it started shortly after creation. The first sin took place in the family. Adam and Eve together disobeyed God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first murder took place in the family. Cain killed his brother Abel out of deep-seated anger and resentment. And by the time we get to the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis, the world has so fallen apart that God destroys it with the flood and resolves to start over again with a family, the father of whom was Noah. Nothing in this world is dearer to us than our family relationships. And so when our families seem to be falling apart, we experience fear, anxiety, panic, and so many more emotions. So what is it today? What is happening around us? What, what are co the contributing factors to the, what appears to be the crumbling of the family unit? Well, I think there's a lot of factors. And I don't think any one factor is to blame. I think they all just kind of come together to create a scenario that makes it hard for the family to survive like God wanted it to. The first one, I think, the first reason, I believe, is, is a lack of commitment to the very principle of family. In general, there is a greater lack of commitment to marriage and the home today than we saw in generations past. Now, some among the younger generations are referring to starter marriages or serial marriages. They, they have this idea that they probably won't have one spouse to go throughout their lifetime, that they may have several spouses at different stages of their ongoing lives. Now, some of that reasoning grows out of the pain they experienced when their parents' marriages failed and they were caught in the wake of a family falling apart. Some of it comes from a low expectation that marriage can actually be fulfilling to us today. And, uh, uh, and some of it comes, I think, because uh, there is a, uh, there's a fresh look at marriage as being uh, not all that important. You see, at one time, marriage was viewed 
as the relationship which provided legitimacy both for sexual expression and the raising of children. But marriage is no longer viewed as the gatekeeper of either one of those. That is, and always has been, God's definition and design for marriage. God designed marriage as a lasting commitment which enhances the joy of intimacy between a man and a woman and provides a safe environment in which to raise children. Children who grow under godly uh, parents, both the oversight of a father and a mother, statistically uh, have a better chance at growing up healthy uh, from a mental, emotional, and a spiritual uh, standpoint. Now, now, obviously, there are exceptions to that. I, I know children who grew up in single-parent homes and who have flourished in our culture, who have done tremendous because their mother or their father who raised them did an outstanding job of raising them. I know kids who grew up with both godly parents, a mother and a dad, and they got rebellious and, and simply rebelled against everything. So there, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's just the odds are better that if you grow up under the direction of both a mom and a dad, you have a better chance of being healthy spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Sociologist Paul Amato estimates that in the United States, every year, this is every year, if we enjoyed the same level of family stability today as we did in 1960, every year our nation would have 750,000 fewer children repeating grades, 1.2 million fewer children, uh, school suspension of children, approximately 500,000 fewer acts of teenage delinquency, 600,000 fewer kids receiving therapy, and approximately 70,000 fewer teenage suicides. That's every year, just if our commitment today was equal to that of 1960. And I can tell you, the 1960s were a rather turbulent time as well. And so, so our commitment, our commitment to the family is not what it once was. That contributes to a family falling apart. Secondly is the ease of divorce and the misunderstanding of the cost of living together before marriage. Uh, in 1969, California was the first state to pass a no-fault divorce decree, which pretty much spread across the country real quickly. And since 1969, the divorce rate has continued to rise. Now, the rate has dropped some in recent years, but that's due more to the fact that fewer people are getting married than to the increasing health of marriages. Now, you've heard the statistic lots of times that about 50% of marriages end in divorce, and you've probably also heard the statistic that about the same goes for Christian families as non-Christian families, but I'm here to tell you this morning that is not an accurate statistic. Bradford Wilcox, a leading sociologist at the University of Virginia and director of the National Marriage Project, finds that those who are active in and regularly attend church are 35% less likely to divorce compared to those who are not involved in the church. Harvard-trained researcher Shanti Feldhahn conducted an eight-year study, an eight-year study, and determined that the national divorce rate for those who are actively involved in church is something like 15 so it really does make a difference in our marriages and our families when, when the church, when our faith is vital to everything that's going on. Now, largely as a result of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the perceived rise in divorce rates, many young couples today are living together before they get married. Uh, they're, they're checking for compatibility. They're, they're hopeful that if they can get used to each other before they get married, that it will somehow make their marriages flourish. But research indicates otherwise. 
Studies from Sweden, Canada, and the United States all indicate the same results. Living together before you are married lessens a couple's chances of having a stable marriage. As a matter of fact, couples who live together before marriage are twice as likely to divorce as those who don't live together before they get married. Cohabitation eats away at trust. It increases anxiety about the commitment of the other person. Will he stay with me? Will she stay with me? <coughs> Excuse me. Cohabiting couples have a lower quality relationship on average than married couples. And according to the research, cohabiting women are almost five times more likely to be abused in that relationship than married women. Five times more likely. Thirdly, uh, there is too much in our culture, I think, that competes for family time and focus. Uh, I watch today as uh, families are pulled in what seems like literally hundreds of different directions. I mean, it, it, there are tough choices to make as family because everything out there is vying for our time, energy, and commitment. There, there is no day of quiet anymore. Well, when Elsie and I got married uh, 37 years ago in Missouri, the state of Missouri still had blue laws. Now, for those of you too young to know what that is, the blue laws meant everything was closed on Sundays. No stores open. You might find a random gas station every once in a while for emergencies or a pharmacy for emergencies. But other than that, everything was closed on Sundays. Today, there's nothing remotely like that. Everything seems to be open all the time anymore. Uh, whether it's shopping or doing this or that, some things are open 24 hours a day. Uh, children's sports have come to dominate family weekends and travel. It's hard on families. It, it makes for tough choices. I hurt for families who are faced with these difficult choices. They want their kids to fit in. They want their kids to have the chance at, at uh, different kinds of sporting activities so that when they get to high school, they can play in sports or maybe college the same way, and so they have to pick and choose. And oftentimes, attendance when at worship services falls through the cracks or gets lost in the shuffle, which has a way of communicating to our kids that everything else is more important than spiritual matters. It's tough on families because of everything that vies for our attention in the home. And fourthly, I think electronic everything. I really like the advancements in technology, but, but I believe it has greatly hampered our ability to communicate in the family. Adults and youth alike are often glued to their phones, tablets, reading emails, text, tweets, and all manner of social media. Now, folks, there's not a thing wrong with those. As a matter of fact, I use several of those. But when they dominate our lives and keep us from spending quality time with one another as a family, they become a hindrance. I was talking to a fellow this week who he, he had taken his family on vacation just this last year, and they'd gone to a place that was rather remote, and you couldn't get cell service. His teenager went into sheer panic at the thought of not being able to, what are we going to do if I can't get cell service? And, and they, they all shut off their phones and other electronic equipment, and he said the week went by. He said it was a great week. They spent time together. They played games together. They did the things that you did before you had cell phones and tablets and all these things. And he said it was, by the end of the week, everybody was relaxed and loving it. One of our ladies after first service this morning going out, she said that this last week she was eating in a restaurant. She observed a, a, a lovely young couple sitting at a table, just the two of them. And she said they ate their meal. They never spoke 
once they were on their phones the whole time. Now, one of two things there. Either they were communicating via their phone with one another across the table, or they have become so sidetracked by the electronic devices that they've forgotten how to communicate, and if they don't remember, it's going to be really tough to keep that marriage together. Perhaps then it's no surprise that each month, each month, there are 40,500 Google searches for the question, why did I get married? And I'm pretty sure Google isn't the best place to get an answer for that question. <laughs> the, the, the real question then is this, is there anything I can do to keep my family from falling apart? Well, yes, there is, but you can't do it alone. No one person can keep a marriage or a family together, no matter how badly you want it to happen. It takes both a husband and a wife working together with God to make the family work the best that it can. It won't be perfect. Nothing in a world that's falling apart can be perfect, but you can have a good marriage and you can build a strong family with these principles. Now, what I'm about to tell you is nothing new. You know this. I'm only telling you what you and I have grown up knowing. We, we just lose track of it in the clutter of everything that's happening in our lives and need to be reminded of these simple principles that do make all the difference. Here's the first one. Put God first. And doesn't that sound so elementary and simple? Put God first. I, I know most of you are familiar with Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. This is the one we usually often quote when we talk about putting God first. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's good stuff. But that's not the only part of the Bible that tells us to put God first. You, you step away from the Ten Commandments, which the first commandment is all about that. But, but look at Isaiah 55, 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Psalm 119, 2. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and who seek him with all of their heart. I love Psalm 63, verse 1. This, David writes this while he's in the wilderness of Judah. And he writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Does, does that describe you this morning? Does that describe your longing for God and his presence in your life? Do you want God as much as a man who is dying of thirst wants that sip of life-sustaining water? Are you seeking him first? If God is the creator of the family, if he is indeed the force that holds all things together, including the family, if his word is like an owner's manual on marriage and the family, then why wouldn't you want to know what God has to say about each. Why wouldn't you seek him first in your life? And if marriage and family aren't all that important, then why did God use both of them as his primary illustration of his relationship with us? We are called in the Bible, the church is called the bride of Christ. The Bible speaks of us as being the family of God. If marriage and family don't matter, then why would God use those two primary illustrations to describe his love and relationship for us. You see, I believe our families have the best shot of being strong and cohesive if we seek God 
first. Second thing, love your spouse. Genuinely loving the one you married and being committed to that person is the best gift you can give your children and your grandchildren. It is the best safeguard against a broken family. Marriage isn't easy, folks. It's hard work, and we seldom realize that before we tie the knot. You know, we know that to be a skilled musician or a machinist, to be a successful salesperson or a company manager, to be a life-changing teacher or a life-saving physician requires years of training and constant tweaking in our lives to become good at that. To develop a good golf swing or a fly fishing cast or a three-point jump shot from behind the line requires hours and hours of practice and application. But when it comes to marriage, put, put us in a tux and put us in a wedding gown and march us down the aisle and we think, hey, I'm going to be a good husband and a good wife. Why would the most important relationship in life not require as much, if not more, focus and dedication and time and energy as any of these other things that we know requires so much practice. Just as two negatives don't make a positive, two imperfect people don't make a perfect marriage. It takes time, energy, patience, forgiveness, hard work, and unconditional love to create a lasting marriage. Anything less won't bring success. One wife was quoted as saying, every woman needs a husband because you just can't blame everything on the government. <laughs> if you're always looking for somebody else to blame in your life, if you're always looking for somebody else to blame in your life, then please, don't get married. When you invest time and energy on yourself instead of your spouse, you'll make marriage last, dead last. And when that happens, your family won't last much longer either. Focus on the other. It's, it's, it's not about you. Chester returned from a seminar on assertiveness with the resolve to become the man of his house. He walked in, swaggered in, as a matter of fact, after two days at this seminar, didn't even say hi to his wife. He just began with this speech. From here on out, I'm the boss of this household. You will respect and obey my every word. Tonight, you will fix me dinner. And then I want you to stay away from the bathroom so I can read and take a hot, relaxing bath in the tub. And when I get finished, guess who's going to lay out my clothes and comb my hair? And she glared back at him and said, the funeral director, that's who. <laughs> It can be deadly to focus on yourself in a marriage relationship, all right? You see, such self-centeredness is indeed a death sentence to the longevity of any marriage. Nobody can survive in the environment where a spouse is always looking at his needs or a spouse is always looking at her needs. It's got to be about the other person. Work to make the marriage wonderful for your spouse. Be thoughtful and considerate. Focus on your spouse's needs. I know it's not easy. It takes concentration and hard work. But when you stop being thoughtful and focused, things will usually go wrong. 
I read this week about a couple that lived in a neighborhood, two couples. Joe and his wife lived on one side of the street, and the Williamses lived on the other side of the street. And uh, Joe could, could literally set his watch in the morning from his breakfast table by Mr. Williams taking Mrs. Williams to work. Every day, at the same time, he slowly backed the car out of the garage and headed slowly down the cul-de-sac and would come back a few minutes later the same way he left. One day, Joe was watching out of his kitchen window, and about 10 minutes after Mr. Williams had taken Mrs. Williams to work, the car comes whipping back, speeding down the cul-de-sac, squealing the tires, almost takes the driveway on two wheels, whips into the garage about 30 seconds later, whips out of the garage and takes off the same way he came in. Joe had never seen anything like that. So that later on in the afternoon, they, they were both out in their yards, and, <laughs> and Joe said, Mr. Williams, he said, I noticed something strange happening this morning. What, what was with that quick trip back home? And Mr. Williams kind of hung his head and he said, well, Joe, this morning when I got Mrs. Williams to work, she wasn't in the car. <laughs> it's really important to stay focused on your spouse, let me tell you. <laughs> there are some other ways to stay focused on your marriage, too. Don't spend private time away from your spouse with members of the opposite sex. Have nothing to do with flirty rumors and sensuous gossip at work. Stay away from internet pornography. Avoid it like your computer has Ebola. Remember, pornography in any form is a form of unfaithfulness in your marriage. An affair with someone who is not your spouse is never justifiable. You, you may even want to believe that God brought this person into your life, but God's leading never contradicts God's words and God's commands. And since adultery is always wrong, that affair is always unjustifiable. I, I, I'm not saying those things are easy. Again, marriage takes hard work. But the rewards of a lasting relationship with your spouse are well worth the investment. Having said that, I realize all of us are fallible human beings. There is nobody in this room who's perfect. Sometimes, for all of our efforts, we cannot keep our marriages together. You can work extremely hard. You can do your best. But if your spouse does not want the marriage to work, it isn't going to work. Because one person working can't make, make it happen. It takes both who are committed to it. And maybe you've worked hard. Maybe you've poured your life into your marriage and your family. Maybe you've done everything within your power. Maybe you have prayed that God will keep your marriage and family together, and it doesn't happen. And you feel so miserable, and you feel like a failure. I want you to know, lift your head up. You're not in control of everything in a fallen world and a broken world. Not everything works like we want and we pray that it will work. Start afresh. Make a new commitment to follow God and do things His way right now. Seek God first and do your best with what you can control. Take the bad decisions of life, the, the bad things that happen in life, and do your best to keep your family together as much as you can. We're imperfect people. Tough things are going to happen. But to the best of your ability, love your spouse deeply.
Here's the third thing. Give your child a godly foundation. Parenting has a lot of desperate moments in it, uh, failures as well as successes, fears as well as confident victories, sadness as well as joy, disappointments as well as hopefulness. We can be rational, logical, and objective about most things in life, but when it comes to our kids, it's hard to be any of that. <laughs> it's really hard to be objective about your kids. We become protective. We, 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 we get that almost animal instinct to protect our own there, because there is something about being a parent that is unlike any other aspect of life. When you experience the birth of your child, when you hold that child in your arms for the very first time, there is a switch that goes off in your life and you know that at that moment you would gladly, willingly lay down your life to save the life of your child. That feeling alone will give you more insight into the character and the love of God than anything else you'll experience in this world. As a result, we desperately need to seek the wisdom of God in raising our children since we are His children. And I'll tell you that I love, and I'm sure you do too, watching your own children. I love watching my daughters now as they raise their own children. Ask my family, and they will tell you that I like tools. I subscribe to the theory that a man cannot have too many tools. Every time I do a home remodeling project or I fix something that's broken, I'm reminded how great it is when you have the right tool for the right project and how impossible something may be if you don't have the right tool. Parenting requires a lot of emotional, mental, and spiritual remodeling and fixing along the way, and the right tools to do that are indispensable. Let me quickly, as we conclude this morning, give you three tools that you need for parenting. Here's the first one. Pray. Pray. One of the most important gifts you can give your children is to pray for them and to pray with them. Pray before they're born. Pray throughout their childhood. Pray for the career they choose. Pray for the spouse that they're going to marry. Pray for them as adults. Pray for them as they become parents themselves. Pray for them throughout your life because God answers prayer. And you need to know this. God loves your children and your grandchildren more than you can possibly love your children and grandchildren. I know that seems impossible, but it's not. God loves them more than you're capable of loving them. And so he's going to hear your prayers because he loves them as much and more than you do. So pray. Another tool, teach them about God. Teach your family about God. Deuteronomy chapter 11 says this, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when, they, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, teach my word to your kids all the time. You see, this matter of being a parent is both exhilarating and exasperating, and I cannot imagine being a father apart from faith in our Heavenly Father. I look at my daughters, and I now look at my grandchildren, and I know that I cannot take credit for anything in their lives. They are gifts from God. And the most important job I have is to give them a faith that will sustain them through the tough times and the world as it continues to fall apart and break. Above all, you and I need to teach our families about Jesus as you're going, when you're sitting, when you rise up, and when you sit down. Teach them by word and teach them by your example. Be consistent in your living.
lead by example. Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. The first verse was one of my favorites to quote to the girls. The second verse was the girls' favorite to quote back to me. <laughs> you see, it's a give and take. Children have a responsibility. Parents have a responsibility. It will be nearly impossible to teach your children obedience if you don't obey yourself. Do I need to say that one again? It'll be nearly impossible to teach your children to obey God if you are not obeying God yourself. Raising children is demanding. John Ortberg asked the question, he said, who has greater contentment, a man with seven children or a man with seven million dollars? The answer, a man with seven children because he doesn't want any more. Learning to follow God brings a sense of contentment. When you do it his way, there is a sense of peace and contentment. When you consistently obey God, it will make it easier for your children to obey. This word obey comes from two other root words. And the root words, one of them is the word here, and the other one is, uh, is under. And so if you were going to literally take those two words, you could almost use the word obey as to hear under, as to hear under God. So in other words, you know, God speaks, I hear, and then under his leadership, I do. Those are the two principles of the word obey. Hear and do. So here's the bottom line. Do your best. Do your best to make growing up for your children a positive and pleasant as it can be. Shelter them a bit. There will be plenty of time for reality to set in protect them a lot. They will know much pain in their lifetimes. Teach them right from wrong. They will need to know the truth. Teach by word and example. Encourage them always. They will find discouragement lurking around every corner of this world in which we live. Love them deeply, for no one else in this world can care for them more than you do. In a world, they will discover hatred, bias, prejudice, dishonesty, disappointment, rejection, frustration, and bitterness. Do your utmost to make your home a haven of happiness where they can retreat from all that is bad to once again discover joy, peace, unconditional love, and the presence of the living God in your family. Most of all, most of all, give them Jesus. And if you give them Jesus Christ and he becomes the focus of their life, you will have been a good parent because you will help your family avoid falling apart in a broken world. He is the glue that holds it all together.